Good morning. My name is Ava, and today I will be reading Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, which can be found in page 852 in your pew Bible. It reads, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and, half of, and I, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Greg, for those of you who don't know me. And... Uh, yeah, thanks, Eva. Uh, before I get into it, one thing Sam pointed out last week, our art for this series, uh, all of the, the hands uh, that are kind of in expressions of different prayer uh, full postures, um, Sam mentioned that they're all hand-drawn, which is true, but there's another, I think, beautiful layer of it, is that the hands are actually all photographs of people from Spring Garden, that there are photographs that were taken and then hand-drawn from it. So today is actually, uh, I believe it's Rose, Marion's hands, and uh, Emily's hands. So anyway, I, thought, I just wanted to share that because I thought that was a beautiful picture of community. Growing up, <clears throat> I had uh, one best friend for most of my childhood. And we were practically inseparable. We spent a lot of time uh, together, especially at his house, playing. And I don't recall exactly when it happened, but at some point there became two main activities we did at his house. Watching TV, he had a much larger TV than I did, plus his house didn't have a mother who told me to get off of the TV and do something. The other thing was that he had a computer with amazing games in color. Can you believe it? Yes, I am old enough to remember a time that computers with color uh, and games more advanced than just a bouncing dot and moving lines. Anything beyond that was very rare in my late childhood. I became narrowly focused on TV and video games at his house. What began as this kind of bonding fun thing turned into just the thing that I went to his house to do. To the extent that I remember there being some times when he wasn't even around when I was playing or watching his TV. I'm not sure what his mom thought when she would see me just sitting in their living room by myself watching TV, but needless to say, we started to drift apart. Our friendship 
uh, drifted. Now, I don't recall how much effort he put into the relationship, but even if he did, I know that I didn't put any effort into the actual relationship. I was no longer investing in it. I was just so focused on the side benefits, on the stuff that came with his friendship, that our friendship, we just drifted apart. I don't know why I was surprised when one day I realized he wasn't inviting me over anymore, but hopefully I'm more self-aware now than I was then, but... (laughs) Meaningful, growing, deep and deepening relationships are not possible unless at some point in the relationship, both people are actually making an effort. So yes, of course, having fun together, even video games and TV, but spending intentional time together, communicating, learning about one another, working through the rough patches, committed in love to one another, not only mutual affection for one another, but mutual effort. And when we don't do these things in our relationships, we shouldn't be surprised when it feels like the uh, the person is drifting away from us. So why would we think that our relationship with God is any different? From now through November, we're focusing on, on, in our worship, we're focusing on prayer. Uh, We felt that God was leading us to just to come back to some of, the, some of the basics in prayer, that God longs for our, us to pursue God in prayer uh, in, the, in, in its various forms. So last week, we focused on how Christ abides in us uh, and how Christ, as Christ abides in us, Christ abides in the Father, and we abide in Christ in the way that Christ abides in the Father and the Father in the spirit, uh, and this just beautiful relationships of, of abiding all over the place, and that we are drawn into that beautiful mystery of the relationship of the Trinity. This week, we're going to spend some time reflecting on the relational nature of prayer. Uh, so let's uh, pray uh, as we continue. Heavenly Father, uh, you sent both your Son and the Holy Spirit, so that we could know you, so we could have a deepening relationship with you, so that the whole of creation would have a restored relationship to you. We ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to you this morning. Amen. So as, as we get into it, I want to acknowledge up front, there's a number of presuppositions that I have around God that well, I'm just going to lay them out there because uh, they're the basis of everything that I'm going to say. Uh, and we talk about these kinds of things a lot, and so didn't want to cover it all again. But So one thing is that God is love. God is not sitting isolated in heaven watching the machine of creation do what it was kind of ordained to do but rather that God is present with us, moving in the world. And while we didn't always understand and see what God is up to, I do believe in God's love for us. That God is active in the world, pursuing us, longing for us to pursue God back. I'm presupposing that two of our core values as a church are true. That God is a triune relational God. And that God is a God who knows us and who desires to be known. And that value continues, therefore, we embrace a journey of faith that requires us to constantly strive for a personal, intimate, 
and transformative knowledge of God. One significant difference, of course, between our human relationships and our relationship with God is that God never stops pursuing us, no matter how little time we may invest in our relationship. And even when there's in the silence, we can't feel it or see it or hear it. Uh, but we, tr- um, we trust and believe that God is pursuing us. We will talk about uh, the silence of God, uh, but that's, we're going to save that for uh, part of uh, another week. Finally, I also think it's important for us to have the self-awareness, not like my childhood self, but hopefully as maturing uh, young people and adults, to have the self-awareness that our image of God, the ways that we picture God, it affects our posture towards God. So, for example, if our view of God is this indif- indifferent, non-personal being, who's just kind of, you know, up there, we wouldn't see any reason to resist, to invest in our relationship, right? If our view of God is that God is not, doesn't have any affection, why would we bother praying if it doesn't make any difference, if God in love isn't actually listening and responding and interacting with us, Right? If our view of God is that God is always watching and judging us, that God is punishing us for mistakes, expecting us to religiously follow a ton of rules or else we're going to receive some divine wrath. If that is our view, any notion of prayer will simply be out of fear and legalistic adherence to the works of prayer. One question that comes up regularly about prayer is, If God already knows everything about me, my thoughts and my feelings, what's the point of even telling them to God? But I think that even to say that, there's no point in telling things to God, that there's no point in telling God what's on our minds and our hearts, is actually showing that we have an underlying presupposition that we're maybe even not aware of, that God isn't interested in a relationship with us. That there isn't a back and forth. That communication with, within a relationship is only to share new information with the other person that the other person doesn't know. But imagine if we, re- we treated our relationships with others around us that we only communicated things that we thought were going to be new <laughs> to our friends. When you love someone, you want to share their deepest selves with you, even if you already know Say a child that you love skins their knee and they're crying, telling you that it hurts. Is your first thought, shut up already? (laughs) Why are you bothering to tell me it hurts? I I already know that. (laughs) Like, save your breath, kid, right? Is that what you think? If that's what you think, then I think you need to spend some time in prayer asking maybe for a compassionate heart. That maybe is a place to start. (laughs) But if you wouldn't do that, why do we think that God would do that? Why do you think that God, who loves us infinitely more than we could love anything, would not long for us to share the fullness of ourselves? See, these are presuppositions, things that are behind how we respond to God that we are often unaware of, but they are keeping us from entering in and pursuing this God who pursues us. God longs for us to bring everything of who we are, to express the depths of our struggles and our pains, but also the joys and the pleasures, the laughter and the tears, our gratitudes and grievances and everything in between. 
This is the relational nature of prayer. Often when we think of prayer, we simply think of asking for stuff, whether it's for ourselves or for others. And that is part of prayer and, and an important part of prayer, but is only one aspect of prayer. Prayer is communication and it is communion. And one thing that's interesting and why we're doing this is this is going to be, for some of us, this is like basic stuff. You're going, okay, come on, man, like, I already know all of this. But there are others who are with us who are only weeks into faith, who are coming from uh, what, well, countries or cultures or religions um, where God isn't a relational God. And so some of us, I hope you receive it as a reminder and encouragement. But for some of us here, uh, we may have never thought about God, that God is this accessible uh, and loving and, and uh, <clears throat> nurturing. Excuse me. So we're going to do a little bit of a history of some of the thoughts of prayer. I'm going to go back to the 8th century uh, where there is a Syrian monk. Uh, and one thing we often forget in, in North America, we often think, well, okay, Christians. Who are Christians, right? Well, they're Protestants and then Catholics. And then sometimes we go, oh, well, let's throw in the Orthodox Church too. We're becoming more aware of that these days. But something we often miss is that the Syrian church is actually historically one of the strongest. There's so much beautiful uh, um, prayer and theology that came out of the ancient Syrian church. But anyway, so this one Syrian monk named John Damascene defines prayer in this way. Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God. Or the requesting of good things from God. In a couple of weeks, we're going to focus on prayers requesting good things from God. Uh, but more foundationally, and for this morning, prayer is a raising of one's mind and heart to God. The raising of one's mind and heart is not simply isolated to our minds as some of us uh, were raised in a church culture that it was all about our brain, right? The image of God is reason. Fortunately, we are learning now and hopefully generations younger than myself are being raised to understand that the image of God is not about intellect, that the image of God is in the fullness of our humanity as embodied people, and that it is a relational image of knowing who we are in relation to God and within God's self. So this raising of mind and heart is not simply the things we think, our logic, or ideas, our theologies, but it is raising of our hearts. It is our emotions, our feelings, because our emotions are an integral part of how we relate to God and how we express ourselves to God, but also how we experience God and how we gain knowledge about God can actually come through our feelings and our emotions. So raising the wholeness of who we are also, though, includes our bodies. All through Scripture, we see that prayer and worship have a physical expression, and that has continued through the centuries in most Christian times of Christian history. The, the time that it is the, less, the least prevalent is what we've inherited uh, from post-16th century, uh, North, the way the North America came out of the Reformation movement 
has been this distinct, this separation of body from the rest of who we are. But that wasn't there through all, especially through scripture and through all of history. Prayer and worship has physical expression, bowing in honor, lifting hands in gratitude and praise, falling face down on the ground in awe, crying and even tearing clothes in mourning and sadness, praying on our knees in humility and repentance. We are embodied beings, and so our physical posture is an expression of what is going on in the wholeness of our being. Some like, somewhat like when you greet a friend with a handshake or a hug, or you tilt your head back with laughter, or you hold hands with someone who is in tears. These physical expressions are responses that sometimes happen naturally, or sometimes we choose to do them or express themselves to the other. And throughout the history of Christianity, believers in Jesus have expressed their desire to know and to speak with God in the fullness of their being, mind, heart, body, and soul. There have been many ways of doing this, of course. There's different traditions and spiritual practices that have proven helpful over the centuries. One of the most obvious and common ones is standing for singing. Kneeling in repentance and humility, open hands as a posture of invitation and receiving. And we would encourage everyone to try, to, to try these things, to try different things, to try expressing yourself physically to God. Yes, God knows what's in your mind and heart, but God created us in the fullness of our being and desires for us to bring the fullness of who we are to God. But of course, the goal of these physical things is not to appease God. It's not to manipulate God into hearing. These things do not need to be performed perfectly or legalistically. The purpose and the goal is simply God's self. Acting out an authentic and intentional pursuing of God. It is about authentic expression of our longing for God and our hopeful trust that God longs for us. Again, for some of us, this is old hat, but some of us, it's new. Prayer at its heart is not a formula. It can be helpful to use prayers and liturgies that have been written by others and prayed by others. I know for myself, sometimes I feel that someone else has been able to express my thoughts and feelings truer and deeper than I can. And so I have many prayers of other people that I return to all the time to help me connect with God, as well as to connect um, with other uh, saints and believers throughout history. There is no right way to pray. It is simply conversing the way we would with a friend. So some, some more quotes on definitions of prayer that I found encouraging. St. Therese of Avila, who is a 16th century Spanish nun, she writes this, Mental prayer is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. Fast forward 300 years to 19th century French Carmelite sister, St. Therese of Lisieux, and she writes, For me, prayer is a surge of the heart, a simple look turned towards heaven, it is a cry of recognition and of love, embracing both trial and joy. I love that image, that surge of the heart. 
Sometimes we may not even be thinking something, words that are coherent or thoughts that you know, I mean, make sense or, or that are, are actual thoughts with words. We just feel this surge within us. And that is prayer. Another way of translating the original French here is to say that prayer is a burst from the heart. A simple glance thrown towards heaven. I also love that. It can just be a quick, simple glance. It doesn't need to be this, this painful, full-on thing. It can be a simple glance towards heaven. Anthony Bloom, who's a 20th century Russian Orthodox monk and bishop, he writes, prayer is an encounter and a relationship. Sorry, I was just looking to see if the slide was going to come up. But. Prayer is an encounter and a relationship, a relationship which is deep, and this relationship cannot be forced either on us or on God. James Martin, 21st century Jesuit, says prayer is conscious conversation with God. And one last definition, prayer is pursuit of the one who pursues us, a pursuit of the very source of love. That's by Greg Kay, a 21st century guy with a beard. There's no right or wrong way to pray. Simply an awareness and an intentionality that we are turning towards a loving God who has first pursued us. In his book, God and You, Prayer as a Personal Relationship, Jesuit priest Father William Barry identifies six things that help healthy relationships to flourish. <laughs> a tongue just here. That help healthy relationships to flourish. The way we think about our relationships with friends helps us how we think about our relationship with God. And of course, we always have to remember there is a key difference between our human friendships and our relationship with God, is that there is only one God. Only God has created all that exists. We are not equals or peers with God. Seems obvious. There's another Jesuit priest, James Martin, who writes in his book, Learning to Pray. He writes this. You're aiming for something essential in the spiritual life, balance. Balance between reverence and friendliness, between awe and familiarity, between toadying and arrogance. Toadying is a funny word. Uh, it, just, it means flattering someone in the hope of gaining favors from them. Not that any of us would do that with God, right? <laughs> Simply say things in the hope of uh, gaining favors from God. No one else? Remember that God is your friend, but remember that God is far more than any friend. So with this important distinction in mind, here are the six traits um, that Father Barry has for flourishing friendships that help us in a relationship with God through prayer. The first is time. All relationships require intentional time spent together. Sometimes it's long hangouts, but sometimes it's just a quick text, reaching out to share a moment that you're in. God, the fall leaves are beautiful, right? Quick prayers, but also intentionally spending time. The second is learning about one another. No matter how long or well you know someone, you never know everything about that person. And that is especially true about God, of course. Obviously, a key way we can learn about God is the Bible. Reading it, praying with it, meditating on it. 
It is one of the greatest tools that God has given us. But we can also learn about God through the words of other people who know God. That can be in reading books or listening to podcasts, talking with other believers, hearing the way that they see and experience God. We can also learn about God not only through words, but through art, through music. Most profoundly often through God's work of creation itself. Through meditating on acts of love and justice, reconciliation and restoration in the world. These things all can reveal God to us and help us to know God more. Third is honesty. Dishonesty and inauthenticity cause distance and mistrust in a relationship. God doesn't want us to pray what we think God wants us to hear. God wants us to be honest in our prayers, genuine and real. And we're going to talk more about that in a few weeks as well. Fourth, of course, I shouldn't say of course, these are all of course. Fourth is listening. This can be a difficult one as God's voice is often not audible voice booming from heaven. In fact, I imagine for most of us, it almost never is this, if it, if it even is ever that. God's voice is often a soft whisper, a stirring, a feeling, a surge, a thought that pops into your head, a peace that briefly washes over you. Many times, for me at least, I hear God's voice in the voice, in the words of others. Whether an author or a poet or those around me through whom the Spirit speaks. The key is to be open and listening. And of course, a part of listening is God listening, not just us listening to God, but God listening to you. We need to always remember relationship is two ways. And this is our hope, is that God is two-way relational with us, that he's not just hiding out, watching things and kind of laughing at our foolery. God is listening to us as part of how God loves us. The fifth is change. All relationships change over time as they mature and grow. Have you ever had a friendship that has changed and you've tried to hold on to the way that it was? You keep wanting that relationship to be the same and you feel yourselves kind of tearing apart from one another. And then we'll have other friendships that we change and grow with them over time and that relationship blooms and grows because we've allowed that change just to be a natural part of it. That's true with our relationship with God as well. Yes, God's character may never change, but God's interactions with us do. I wonder how many times we miss seeing, hearing, or feeling God's work because we expect it to be exactly how it was before or how it was for someone else. And we ourselves change our needs, our desires, our joys, our understandings, our perceptions of the world and of God. They change. Sometimes a spiritual practice that was once meaningful us, for us becomes no, no longer meaningful. And so we need to try new things, be willing to get out of some things past so that God can meet us where we are. And this can be really hard for those of us who don't like change, who, who push against change. Um, but change, I think, is part of the way God has created the whole order of creation the way that God creates our hearts. And so um, being open to change, I think, is a key. And finally, number six is silence. 
The test of any deepening relationship is the ability to be in one another's presence without feeling the need to speak. To simply be. Us introverts love that one. But it is true for everyone. Our souls are often stirred up by the noise of life like water in a stream. In silence and stillness, those waters can calm. The silt and the sand can settle to the bottom, leaving the waters of our souls clear and at peace so that we can hear better. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 18, verse 19. God brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God delights in you and wants to meet with you in the stillness and the silence where our hearts can be more easily in tune with the whispers of the Spirit. God does not require you to say certain things, to follow certain formulas. The creator of the universe simply wants to love you and wants to love you back. The very source of love pursues you, and so let the so let us pursue the one who first pursues us. Like a close sharing between friends, taking time to be with God in prayer. Through this series on prayer, uh, we wanted to introduce you to some ancient Christian spiritual practices uh, that have been helpful for many throughout the, the centuries. In our, and, and we as a pastoral team have found helpful in our relationship with God. As I said before, the purpose of these is to be tools that help us to connect with God authentically. So not every one of these will be helpful for all people. We've also added it to our website in a section called Spiritual Practices, where you can find a number of different practices uh, that, again, are simply there to be a resource. And this morning, we're going to do a spiritual exercise that's called the Imaginative Prayer. This is a spiritual exercise that was made well known by the 16th century, in the 16th century, by the founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola. That's not right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the idea behind imaginative prayer is that in the same way we believe the Holy Spirit can use our reason and our minds for God's purposes, so creativity and imagination is also a gift that God gives us. And it can be used in prayer for connecting with God and for hearing from God. The most common way to use the imaginative prayer is to use uh, a narrative from Scripture. Often it's in the Gospels. And through your imagination in the presence of the Holy Spirit to enter into the story. So today we'll be using the story uh, that Ava read for us, the story of Zacchaeus. Now usually part of the practice is to discover who in the story you might picture yourself as. But today I'm going to encourage us to actually picture ourselves as Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the one in the story who is seen by Jesus and who Jesus wants to spend time with. If you're uncomfortable with doing this, I also want to put it out there. That's okay. You don't have to do this. But if you are comfortable, uh, let's begin by putting ourselves in a posture of openness to God. I personally find it helpful to sit as comfortable, I guess, as you can in a pew. Uh, There are some like pillows and cushions over here if you want. For your back. Um, Sit in a way that's comfortable. 
Uh, and so I invite you to pray with me. If it's, I find it's helpful to close, close my eyes. But um, uh, anyway, so I encourage you to do what's helpful for you. Still yourself and pay attention to your breathing. Like Sam taught us last week with the breath prayer. And as you pay attention to your breathing, allow any tension that is in your body or your mind to, to melt away. Remembering this is not simply mindfulness, but it is to be with God. And so ask God to be present with you through the Holy Spirit, to speak and to direct your thoughts and feelings. I'm going to read the passage twice. Once simply so we know the full content of the story, and the second reading uh, will be to, to, to pay attention. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. As I read it a second time, I want you to imagine yourself in the story as Zacchaeus. And try to imagine what your senses would experience. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you feel? What do you taste? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So as you picture, what does the scene look like from the top of the tree? Looking over the tops of the crowd's heads. Do you see Jesus in the crowd? Do you hear the noise of the crowd, the wind blowing through the tree? Perhaps there's a child crying, (laughs) which we can actually hear. What can you feel? Can you feel the bark of the tree against your hands and your legs? 
Can you smell the dust from the street, the cool grass-like scent of the fig leaves? When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. As you see Jesus looking up at you, focusing his gaze upon you, what stirs in your mind and your heart? Jesus says he wants to come to your house, spend time with you. How does that feel? Does it make you excited, nervous, embarrassed that you haven't done the dishes yet? How do you feel? So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Picture yourself walking to your home with Jesus, walking side by side. Or perhaps sitting at the table, eating together. You can feel Jesus' presence next to you like you would a close friend. What does Jesus say to you? How does it feel that Jesus has chosen to spend this time with you? Pay attention to any emotions or desires or memories, thoughts, feelings, anything that comes up. Pay attention and offer them back to Jesus. Make a mental note of anything that you want to carry with you into the day from this time. Something that you want to remember. And as you come out of prayer, thank God for, thank Jesus for spending this time with you. Even if you didn't hear or sense anything, God was present with you. Give thanks to God that Jesus sees you God, Jesus knows you and wants nothing more than to spend time with you.
Jesus, thank you for your generous love that pursues us even when we do not pursue you. Help us to seek you, to make time for you, to pray and to listen. Amen.